Let us turn in God's holy word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll read uh, verses 17 through 34. 17 through 34. You can find it on page 1319 in your pew Bible. 1319. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are sick, are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be emmed with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. Also, in light of where we are in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, dealing with the sacraments, um, we had an introductory sermon on the sacraments last week, uh, both baptism and Uh, Lord's Supper, and I'd like to skip to Lord's Day 30, which deals with the examination uh, of the Lord's Supper, especially in in a week of preparation. It teaches us uh, what the Lord's Supper is and how to examine ourselves as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so I'd like to hear our confession, Lord's Day 30. From the Heidelberg Catechism, found on page 62 in the back of the Psalter. And from there we will 
move also into the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. Question 80. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? Answer. The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Christ, which He Himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that He by the Holy Spirit and that we by the Holy Spirit are engrafted into Christ, who according to His human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God His Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and is an accursed idolatry. Question 81. For whom, <clears throat> for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? Answer. For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened, and their lives more holy, but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Question 82. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? Answer, no. For by this the covenant of God would be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and His apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. I'd like to also proceed then to the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we find the instruction uh, of 1 Corinthians 11 set right before us. And so we will, which we just read, so we will move to the second paragraph of the administration of the Lord's Supper. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary rightly to examine ourselves and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ has ordained the sacrament, namely to do this in remembrance of Him. True examination consists of three parts. First, let each of you carefully consider your sins and the curse do them so that you loathe and humble yourself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that He, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let each of you examine whether you also believe this trustworthy promise of God, that all your sins are forgiven only through the cross of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ 
is graciously imputed to you as your own. Indeed, so completely as if you personally had satisfied for all your sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let each of you carefully examine your own conscience to see if you are determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and walk sincerely before His face, striving to lay aside all hostility, hatred, and envy, resolving from this day forward to live in true love and unity with your neighbor. All those then who are of thus this mind, God will certainly receive in grace as worthy partakers of the table of Christ. On the contrary, those who do not believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Therefore, according to God's word, we admonish all those who are guilty and continue in the following sins to abstain from the table of the Lord and declare that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. All who refuse to trust in the Lord alone serve Him in in their own way. Abuse the name of the Lord. Do not diligently attend the worship services and neglect the holiness of the Lord's day. Rebel against authority. Violate human life. Cherish hatred and bitterness. Do not keep themselves sexually pure. All who by stealing or extravagance lead a worldly life. Liars, backbiters, slanders, all who show themselves to be unbelieving by leading an offensive life, as long as they continue in such sins, they shall not take of this food which Christ has ordained only for his believers. Otherwise, their judgment and condemnation will be the heavier. But beloved brothers and sisters, This warning is not intended to discourage those believers with broken and contrite hearts as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper except the sinless. We do not come to this supper to declare that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves, but on the contrary, groaning under the body of this death, we seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. We come confessing that we do have many shortcomings, that we do not have perfect faith. We do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and against the evil lust of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to all God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness which still remains in us against our will, can prevent us from being received by God in grace and mercy as worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. May God bless us as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day through our confessions, through Scripture, and also through the exposition of His Word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I trust most of us really enjoy Sunday dinner. 
Maybe even enjoy most evening dinners around our tables as a family. And I don't know of a place that's more precious than the life of a family. There are few places that are so expressive as the dinner table of what a a communal meal looks like. A shared meal and fellowship. Because they're at the dinner table, whether it's on a Sunday or whether it's on a weekday. You recognize in the same family or you have invited guests and friends to be there with you. And there's a common bond between you. And so the dinner table becomes a place that's more than just going through the mechanics of filling your belly and being filled physically. An ideal dinner table is a place where through its hospitality and fellowship is enjoyed through its conversation. And yet we recognize because of the brokenness of sin and relationships that these communal meals, even in a natural way in our, in our society, in our culture, in our families, are also a place that exposes dysfunction. It exposes breakdown and many times is seen and felt. I'm sure we've all experienced it. Where we sat down at the dinner table and we ate and it was dead silent the entire meal. And the tensions around the table were extremely high. We've experienced that in life to one degree or another. such things. It's also very interesting when you look at and examine different families and different cultures as to how they conduct themselves in their feet, a place of wholesome conversation, a place of joy and laughter and, and, and the enjoyment of a family and those who join us in like mind. What if we were to be a guest and go to someone else's dinner table? What does that communicate? As we go there, do we, we ask them to follow your traditions and assume that their family dinner is going to be exactly the same as, as their family dinner? Or do you go there and do you appreciate the traditions of that family and enjoy their family meal? I know many, for many of us as Dutch, uh, uh, we don't actually in our family practice this, but many of you do on Sunday afternoons. It's You have your cake, and you have some fellowship, and then you have your soup, and some more fellowship. And it's kind of a Dutch culture, Dutch tradition, that it's a blessing. I didn't grow up that way necessarily, and, but I appreciate it when I go to your homes and, and can participate in, in such a tradition and such uh, fellowship. And so, when I'm in your home, I trust that I wouldn't want to impose just how we operate on Sunday dinner. But think about not only going to someone else's house, but let's, let's imagine we were invited to King Charles to have Sunday dinner or an evening meal with King Charles and a royal table. Then 
we would probably have to consider a few more things, wouldn't we? We would have to consider some instructions and probably even be given some instructions from the royal court as to the proper etiquette to attend such a royal meal. You would want all the instructions you could get. You'd want to prepare yourself to partake of such a meal. I trust you know where I'm going with this. What about the Lord's table? A God who has created everything. A God who is so transcendent in glory. A God who is perfectly holy. Invites us to His table with His people. What is that all communicating? What are His instructions for us? as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper at His table. Well, we praise the Lord that He gives instruction through His Word. And so I'd like to look at this with the theme, preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper. And when we look at that, I want to see two thoughts. We do so through the proper instruction. And secondly, through the proper examination. Preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper through His instruction. Well, when we turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we recognize that there are problems in Corinth. And oftentimes when we have problems in our families, we recognize that we have to instruct our children. When there's problems around the family table and, and, and there's just a free-for-all, we, we give proper instruction to our families. And, and Paul is recognizing problems in Corinth. He's recognizing problems. And, and so he needs to instruct them on how to properly partake of the Lord's Supper. And we find that in, in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you because there's problems among you. You have come together not for the better, but for the worst. First of all, when you come together as a church, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And he's highlighting this problem in Corinth. That there are divisions. And what he means by divisions there is that not necessarily divisions because they have opposing views on one doctrine or another or on uh, one exegesis of a passage or another that causes church divisions and denominational divisions. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the divisions that are based on societal status. Those divisions that, that, would, that would be part of their culture. And so when they, when they gather in their culture, there are these societal divisions between the rich and the poor, between men and women, and, and boys and girls and, and adults, and, and all of these uh, divisions that society would bring. And he says, these things ought not to be in the church. When you are gathered together as a church, it's not like gathering together as the world gathers together. 
But when you come together in one place, he says in verse 20, it is not to eat of the Lord's Supper. You are not practicing it rightly. For in eating, you, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. You're, you're going before others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? He says, do you not have homes and society to, to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What, what should I say to you? I shall not praise you. Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you, he says. Why? He says this because they have an upside-down societal order in their church. They have followed the societal order of the world and their culture and taken this into the church and it's affected the church and even infected the church. Their Lord's Supper was celebrated like a dinner party in their culture. And that was a problem. The Lord's Supper was designed to demonstrate something radically different than a dinner party in their culture. As a matter of fact, the Lord's Supper is designed to be a completely opposite, an upside-down model of what the world offers. Because these divisions among them promoted those who had wealth and money, those who were the homeowners, the business owners, and and those who were great financial supporters of the church. They would come earlier with all of their blessings and and their good meals, and, 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 and they would meet together and spend this leisure time of fellowship together. And then those who were poor could come in. And they would get the dog's portion they would get the leftovers, the scraps. And so when they came together, it was not for their better, it was for their worse. It was bringing the judgment of God upon them. And they were sick, and they were weak, and they were dying spiritually because they had an upside-down model of what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the next very next chapter in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul points out who the body of Christ is as many members of one body. And there are members of the body that are weaker, but he says they are necessary in verse 22. He says there are members that are less honorable in the body, but we must bestow upon them even greater honor in the body. There are those who, who are unpresentable even and yet are necessary in the body. He's saying there should be no schism, no divisions, no fractions, no statuses within the body of Christ because we are all members together as sinners saved by the grace of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand, he says, the spiritual nature and life of the body of Christ. It's not a material life. But rather, but rather, it is a spiritual life. We aren't 
having fellowship necessarily, horizontally. We are, but not exclusively. There is a horizontal, member to member, within the body of Christ, fellowship around His table. But what's unique about the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying, is that vertical relationship with God. God has instituted or ordained this table. It's God's table. And so we are called to unity in the body of Christ as we come together at the Lord's table. And so he gives clear instructions. He's giving these instructions, he says in verse 17, and then he identifies this problem. And then in verse 23, he goes on to explain these instructions. And, and notice as he gives these instructions, he's, he's not saying, well, I think that the Lord's Supper should be conducted in such and such a way based on his own ideas or his own thoughts. But what does he do in verse 23? For I have received from the Lord... This is instruction from God, that which I also delivered to you. That the, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread as He instituted the Lord's Supper. When He took that bread and He gave thanks and He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In like manner, He also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. He gives an objective testimony as to what God has instituted and how He instructs us to conduct ourselves in the Lord's Supper. What a blessed truth. He says this, do this in remembrance of me. He takes the very objective testimony of what Christ has done. Sins. And my blood was shed for you. It's pictured in the wine being poured out for a complete atonement of all your sins. You see, as we saw last time, the sacraments are signs and seals of Christ's redemptive work on behalf of a broken community who has been saved by His signs in the Lord's Supper of nourishment. Of... But there's also this subjective element to it, isn't there? Yes, very objective, but in a sense there is a subjective element that we look past the, the, the bread and the wine and by faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit, our faith is strengthened through the promises of God and through what we witness in the Lord's Supper. Just like our bodies are strengthened by bread or by wine, our souls are also refreshed and nourished. Our faith is strengthened. Inwardly have communion with God through this broken bread and this poured out wine. 
And so this, this supper seals to us something. Remember that seal was like something that gave it realness, authenticity. It gave it a certainty. It confirms something. And so what does it confirm? It confirms that the promises of God in the Lord Jesus Christ are absolutely sure. That indeed, even as His breath poured out, so His body and blood, His body has been broken and His blood poured out, sealing to us that there is forgiveness with God. That there is the atonement of all of our sins. The payment is paid in full. And we can depend upon Him when we trust in His sacrifice and we trust in His righteousness. Then we can know that His grace and His faithfulness endure forever to us. Just as a king would seal a document and a decree, so our Lord seals to us by faith through His Spirit the truths that are communicated in His Word and in the sacrament unto our soul. And it strengthens our faith. Yesterday we had the privilege of witnessing a wedding. And there's vows that are made. And our tradition is that we would seal that marriage with a token of our faithfulness. A promise. Confirming that indeed I will be faithful. And so also with the seal of the Lord's Supper, it's like that wedding ring. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes and says, I, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, give you this seal. I give you this seal of my constant faithfulness and my abiding love. And not even death will dissolve this seal. He seals to us His promise. Personally, even to a sinner such as me, as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He come. His body broken for me. His blood shed for me. But it's also important to remember what the Lord's Supper is not. The Lord's Supper is not, as we find in our catechism especially highlighted, it is not like the Roman Popish Mass. It is not something, first of all, that would convey grace or or would begin grace in the heart of a life. But it's something that strengthens our faith by His grace. It doesn't bring us into grace. It doesn't initiate us into the family of God. But rather, it strengthens our faith as children who are in the family of God. Secondly, we recognize that when the Lord's Supper happens and takes place and the bread is broken, that the body of Christ is not continually broken. It has been broken once.
The Roman Catholic Church, of course, believed that the bread and the wine mystically, miraculously, is transformed upon the priest's blessing into the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you, you, you wouldn't want to drop one crumb. You wouldn't want to drop, spill one drop of the wine. Because that's the body and blood of the Lord. But no, that would be accursed idolatry, our catechism says. These, these elements are not to be worshipped, but they're to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just all point fingers at the Roman Catholic Church and say, now, now we got it all figured out. Because we also need to be confronted in, in errors that lie in our own hearts and in our own churches even at times. Because we need to remember, fourthly, that the Lord's Supper is not based Fifthly, it's also partaking of the Lord's Supper is not based on our works, how good we are. It's not based on our emotions, how sorrowful we are or how joyful we are. It's not based on our feelings that, the, that, as it were, the Holy Spirit just lifted me up out of my pew and brought me to the front so I could partake. It's not based on any of that. But very clearly, Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. It's because of what Christ has done. It's about what, who Christ is. It's not some kind of altar call. But rather, it is objective based on what Christ has done for a sinner like me. Of course, that comes with subjective elements. And finally, we need to remember never to elevate the Lord's Supper and its elements to a place that is above the Word of God. The Word of God always needs to accompany the elements for us to be blessed by the Holy Spirit in partaking. And so we recognize it's not a means of receiving grace, initial grace. It's not a continual offering of Christ. The elements are not to be worshipped, not to be elevated. It's not simply based on being a, a member of a church, but rather a living member. And it's not based on my feelings, my works, or my emotions. And so we need to recognize who then the Lord's Supper is to be administered to. And we recognize that here in 1 Corinthians 11, and you can go all the way through 14, and you recognize that Paul is setting things in order in the churches. And so 
things need to be done decently and in good order. And one church may do that in a slightly different way than another church or denomination. But one way that we do it in particular, following 1 Corinthians 14, verse 10, that all things would be done decently and in good order, we have ordered a way of that there would be communicant membership followed by a confession of faith or an attestation of faith. And so that would show us who should be admitted to the Lord's table within the congregation. And when we practice something called close communion, then we also, yes, welcome all those who have made their confession of faith, who are members in good standing within our church. We invite others who have like-minded confession in our churches and within Reformed churches to the table of the Lord. But we do so in a way of examination and trusting also that they would have been examined already by their own congregation. Furthermore, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially we have this wonderful practice in our church, is what we call home visits, where we get to know the congregation as elders and pastors and deacons, and we're able to instruct the congregation as souls are being dealt honestly with, yes, in the preaching, but also in home visits, as, as the elders guide and lead to a closer fuller relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and encourage you to prayer and warn you of indifference. You see, that's, that's what happens. It's, it's a way of discipleship and discipline through our home visits. And thirdly, we recognize that it is, especially through the faithful preaching of God's Word. Even we have this practice as having a preparatory service even as we have now where we can be instructed in what the Lord's Supper is and encouraged and encouraged by it and provided help in way of examination. At times, the church also needs to exercise church discipline, Christian discipline, where those who by confession and life as our Heidelberg Catechism says, are declaring that they are unbelieving or ungodly, that they need to be disciplined so that they would be guarded, fenced, kept away from the Lord's Supper, so that they don't bring upon the whole congregation the wrath of God. And yet we acknowledge as office bearers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we cannot know the heart of every member. We can't judge the heart of every member. And so therefore, it is important not only to be instructed in what the Lord's Supper is, but also to properly examine ourselves and judge ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so, preparing for the to partake of the Lord's Supper also comes not only through instruction, but also examination. And Paul is very clear about that in 1 Corinthians 11. That he, that whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself 
not discerning the Lord's body. What Paul is recognizing here is that the nature of the sacrament is holy. That the, that the, the Lord's Supper needs to be administered in a holy manner. And so there's a holy God involved. There's a holy table involved. There's holy people involved. And there's the holy gospel involved. And that word holy there means that it is separated unto the the gospel. And see, the problem in Corinth was this, that they had not separated themselves into the gospel, but rather had taken their worldly traditions and their worldly way of communing together and brought it and imposed it upon the Lord's Supper. And it led to death among them. Spiritual death and weakness and sickness. And it brought upon them the very wrath of God. And they needed to examine how they partook of the Lord's Supper and needed to examine themselves also. They weren't properly understanding the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was We recognize it's healthy to examine ourselves every day. But especially in regard to the Lord's Supper, as we find even in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, that we are called to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith and that Christ is in us, lest we be disqualified. Even Christ Himself had a little practice of self-examination before the first administration of the Lord's Supper with His own hands. Warning them, one of you is going to betray Me. And they're all looking within themselves. Would it be me? Would it be me? And so our catechism, our form, and God's Word say three sinfulness. Abhor our sinfulness. Holy God. And when we love the Lord our God, it that our sin has offended God and it leads us to repentance. And as we confess that sin, We don't try to justify ourselves in that sin. We don't try to excuse ourselves. No. We judge our own hearts and we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and search me and know my heart and try me. I would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and that I would see the sufficiency of His work for a sinner like me. It cries out, give me Jesus, else I die. I can't live without the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't live by denying the Lord Jesus Christ, by staying away from the table of the Lord. Give me Jesus, else I die. I can't live without Him. And you surrender to Him and His work by a true and living faith. And you know personally something that It's absolutely amazing about the Gospel that our sins are so fully paid that it's as if we paid them ourselves when Jesus died for us on the cross. That the righteousness that I need to have everlasting life is so granted unto me. It's as if I earned it and was perfectly obedient to God's, God's holy law. We know there's deliverance in Christ. 
And we believe it. We trust in it. We cast ourselves, body and soul, in life and in death, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Forsake sin in our life and live to the glory of God. No, we don't learn. When we judge ourselves, we look at our desires. Because we know that even the holiest of men only have a small beginning of a new obedience to serve God and to glorify Him forever. And so we look at how much we desire the Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be holy and strive to be holy. Striving to live to the glory of God as we forsake our old nature. As we take up our cross and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that that is what we look for in ourselves as we judge ourselves. We look to whether the Lord is leading us in the way everlasting as we find in Psalm 139. We do so as David did in Psalm 51. When Nathan the prophet came to him and exposed the sin of Bathsheba, and David, and as he comes before the Lord, he cries out, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out all my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He recognizes that he was born in iniquity conceived in sin. And yet, he knows the loving kindness of God. The forgiveness of God. The power of God in washing him so that he would be even whiter than snow. And he prays to God. Make me hear joy and gladness. Don't hide your face from my sins, but blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He prays as he looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the secret of it all. Is for every look we take to ourselves, we take ten looks to Jesus and see what he's done for us. And after examining ourselves, what does Paul tell us to do? Well, judge yourself and stay away. No, he doesn't. This is what he says. And so let him eat. So let him partake. He is properly judged, and so therefore partake. Maybe you say, well, it's better not to partake because I don't want to bring the wrath of God down upon me. Well, dear congregation, if you deny the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is abiding upon you already. Can you live that way? And can you die that way? And in this week of preparation, I want you to think about that. Because if you 
can't come to the Lord's table, then you are not ready to meet God. And that is a sobering thing. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. As a testimony of what God has done for a sinner such as me. So I just have to examine myself once every three months? No. We need daily examination. We need to always be prepared. But dear congregation, this week, the call to prepare comes from our Lord. And He calls us and will invite us next Lord's Day, if He tarries, to come and dine, to do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, prepare us in this week to partake of the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day, if it be your will. But Lord, also, prepare us daily to be ready to stand before you, the living God, a holy God, who has prepared a holy table for all eternity, for all your people, some of whom have gone before us or sitting at even now, communing in fellowship with you, bathing in the full glory of Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of the Father in perfect communion through the Holy Spirit. Oh God, We look forward to that day as Your people where our faith will be sight and we will no longer need to be strengthened week by week and day by day. But Lord, to be with You in glory. Lord, You have said to do this and remember it to me till You come again. You have even said You won't do drink of that vine until You come again. And so Lord, we know Your desire to do this. And we ask, O Lord, that it would be our desire to come and to taste and to see that You are a God of abundant mercy and abundant grace even next Lord's Day. And that our faith would be strengthened to go forward day by day in this life to live to Your honor and to Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.